You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about urology and primary care. And joining me is Dr. Christopher Long, who's an attending urologist and assistant professor of urology and surgery at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and with us at CHOP. So thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you, Katie. This is, uh, it's good to meet everyone and say hello, at least uh, via audio, and, and looking forward to hopefully clearing up a few topics for everybody. Great. So anyone who's been to a PEDS conference recently has seen a number of protesters outside against circumcision, and many of our primary care doctors are the ones who are doing circumcisions in the well baby nurseries where they are. So what is the current evidence for or against circumcision, and how should we counsel families about this? So I think it's a great way to sort of start the discussion. Um, certainly, if you look on the internet, there's no doubt that there's no lack of controversy in terms of both for or against uh, circumcision. Mm-hmm. So um, how I sort of handle it in terms of talking about it with parents is um, I start by, you know, a lot of parents ask me if people, like how many people are still getting circumcised. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, there was a lot of thought that the trend was towards less circumcision, especially people coming from other countries where circumcision isn't as common. Mm-hmm. Um, but it looks like the trends are still between 65 to 70 percent of people are still getting circumcised, okay. at least. Um, and that's at least in a newborn period. So from there, you know, I, I think in terms of looking at sort of the negative side or the con to doing a circumcision, um, I think that the major one is that, you know, the parents are the ones that are making the decision for the for mm-hmm. the patients or the babies. And, you know, I think that the sort of decision is pretty straightforward when there's something like a, a cancer issue. Right. Um, but I think from a circumcision issue, it's more of an elective procedure, so it's a little bit more difficult. And mm-hmm. so it's hard to sort of justify and say that it's okay for the parent to do that. And so that's why... Um, that's a big argument against uh, doing right. it. Um, some people also, uh, you know, criticize that you know there might be a lack of sensation, um, mm-hmm. or also that uh, you know there is a risk for complications. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that um, there's no procedure that we do that's 100% free of complications. Right. So I think answering the issue with the sensation. You know, basically, all the studies that we found is that the sensation comes from the glands itself and not yeah. from the foreskin. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I usually talk to parents about that. I don't think that there is, uh, at least as far as the research shows, there's no decrease in sensation. Mm-hmm. And that's comparing adults that had uh, an, an assessment before and after circumcision. Okay. And then from there, the risk of complication, I mean, there's no doubt that that's a possibility, um, that that can happen, and we've all sort of seen some issues after circumcision, and, mm-hmm. and from a urologic perspective, some, some serious complications afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, from, from the pro side of things, though, I think that, <clears throat> you know, the biggest thing from our end is, you know, a decrease in the risk of a urinary tract infection, right. um, you know, sexually transmitted infections for, for boys as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a decreased risk for penile cancer, um, which a relatively rare event, but it's mm-hmm. almost zero uh, in the circumcised population. Okay. And then a lot of parents just do it because they want to fit in, with, they want their boys to fit in with their brothers or even their fathers. So right. I think that there's a social sort of aspect of it too. Great. So those give us a lot of talking points uh, with families, both for and against. And like you said, I think 
it's important that the, the parents make a decision that feels right to them and their family and um, and knowing all the risks and benefits. Ultimately, I think so. Yeah, I think, you know, some do it for religious reasons, too. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's a factor. Um, right. And then ultimately, I think the other thing that I tell parents is that, you know, the, the best time to do it is in the newborn period. Mm-hmm. So uh, from a pain standpoint, from a recovery standpoint, everything is much easier in that standpoint. So yeah. or in that time frame. So if there's any question about it or they're leaning towards doing it, I usually tell them I advise them to do it at that period. Right. OK, great. So let's move on a little bit. So at what age should we as physicians be retracting the foreskin during physical exams? So we've, we've passed the circumcision point. So now that we're seeing them in clinic, this is a, a topic that comes up a lot and that parents ask us a lot too. I'm sure it does. And I, I think that you know, the easiest, the quickest answer is that unless they're having an issue mm-hmm. between, then we don't re- recommend any retraction until between five and seven years of age. Okay. Uh, once they get to seven, if it hasn't uh, started retracting at that point, we typically, typically recommend, you know, topical steroids to sort mm-hmm. of ease the phimosis. Mm-hmm. But until that point, there's no medical benefit to retracting the foreskin. Great. Um, that being said, I've seen, you know, some parents that are retracting from birth and, and who knows how they got it to come back. It's mm-hmm. not easy for us even to do that in the operating room sometimes, um, but they can be pretty aggressive and, and I usually just tell them not to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you can pull it back a little bit and see the meatus, I think that that's a fine thing to do. But other than that, there's really no reason to do it. Right. The biggest question that we always have for subspecialists is, when do we refer for things? So we, maybe we've identified it in clinic and we understand what the diagnosis is, but when do you need to see them? So some things that I'm thinking about are things like hydroseals, retractile testes, or undescended testes. And what what's the timing for each of those of, of when they need to see urology? So, so another uh, great question and, and something that we see quite often. So I think I think we start with the easy ones, undescended testes. Um, I think that you know, ideally, if the testicles aren't down at birth, mm-hmm. then by six months of age, if they haven't spontaneously descended, mm-hmm. then I think that that's the, the time frame to to, rec- to have them combined see us. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, we typically recommend that surgery is done between six and 18 months of age mm-hmm. if they're not down from birth. So I think anywhere in that time frame would be, would be perfect. Great. Um, any boy that's had an ascended testes, so if you have a three-year-old and the testicle is no longer, you know, not able to palpate it where it's supposed to be in the scrotum, then mm-hmm. I would refer them immediately. Okay, great. Um, retractile testes are always a little bit on the trickier side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's sort of, I always I talk to parents, I mean, there's, there's, you know, a number of patients that come in and are a difficult exam in the pediatrician's mm-hmm. office and, you know, they come in and ultimately we don't need to do surgery because they have retractile testes, but I always mm-hmm. tell parents that, it's better to err on the side of, you know, you come in and you have a retractile testes as opposed to sort of sitting on a patient that has mm-hmm. non-descended testes. Right. Because I think that the line, it, it's, it can be pretty gray sometimes in terms right. of, um, you know, uh, in terms of what's actually going on and in terms of what the diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, same thing. I mean, if they're not down by six months, then refer the retractile testes mm-hmm. or, um, you know, any time after that. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, if there's any concern about the exam, I think it's always safer to just refer them over. Mm-hmm. That's a great point because sometimes I see someone in primary care who I haven't seen before, and I don't know if what I'm seeing is a retractile testy at that one moment in time or if it was a missed undescended testicle. So then I err on the side of referring sometimes because I don't know how long it's been up. Um, so I think, like you said, add six months or anytime there's a concern, it's better safe. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, because that's that scenario has played out a lot. I mean, the families, mm-hmm. some families are like, oh, I've been following with this pediatrician forever. And now he's eight or nine years old. And they right. sort of said that everything's OK with the testes. And 
saw a new pediatrician in the practice and all of a sudden, you know, we're here now. So right. I think that right. if there's ever any concern, I think it's always better to refer. Yeah. And in, you know, the one scenario where we refer at birth would be if there's bilateral undescended testes, right. particularly in the setting of a hypospadias. I think that yeah. that's, you know, should all be made automatic for immediate um, yeah. referral just to, to make sure everything's okay. Great. And then hydrocele? Yeah, so hydrocele is <laughs> always tricky. Um, so I think, <laughs> I think, you know, typically, to be honest, we, we don't recommend surgical repair until at least a year of age okay. if it's a routine hydrocele. Mm-hmm. I think if you if there's any concern that there might be a hernia there as well mm-hmm. then i think more immediate referral will be a good thing mm-hmm. um i think if you're having trouble feeling the testicles so you have you know mm-hmm. that you know that scenario where you have bilateral very large hydrocele mm-hmm. at birth um then typically you can get an ultrasound if mm-hmm. the ultrasound looks okay the testicles are where they are you know where they're supposed to be and they look okay i mean good perfusion then i think you can probably hold off until closer to a year of age okay um but you know, you can always refer them earlier if you'd like, but you know, I think at about a year of age, because that's what we do. We just give them give them some time to see if they um, if it goes away on their own. Great. So shifting gears a little bit, um, at what age does primary nocturnal enuresis become abnormal, and what are your preferred treatments of it? So nocturnal enuresis is uh, fun for everybody, <laughs> particularly for us. Um, it does, you know, it is, for better or for worse, it, it does represent a big part of our practice. Probably mm-hmm. as many as 40% of the patients that we see are, wow. have, are for, for, for some sort of wedding issues and dysfunctional mm-hmm. voiding. So um, where it becomes abnormal, uh, five years of age, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere around there. Um, but that being said, you know, we've seen families that are younger than that, mm-hmm. um, you know, they get concerned because their child's been potty trained since a year and a half mm-hmm. and now they're four or five and it's, mm-hmm. and it's still there. Um, but five years of age is, our, is sort of our cutoff where we start to address it. Okay. Um, and then the other component of that is, is how interested the patients are. Mm-hmm. So if you have a six year old and they have absolutely zero interest in being potty trained at night, um, mm-hmm. then it's, they're not going to sort of respond to the therapy that we mm-hmm. do. So that's always part of it, and regardless of, of how into it the parents are. And okay. we usually try to talk them off the ledge and try to get them, you know, there's be a lot of anxiety. I'm sure, mm-hmm. I'm sure you all see it uh, pretty often in terms right. of, you know, that negative feedback can, can cause a problem. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. um, you, know, our, 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 you know, our routine is we assess how they void during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always tell parents that what happens at night is a direct reflection of how they do during the day. Mm-hmm. So if they hold their urine a lot. Um, if they're not drinking a lot of water, um, and if they're, you know, significantly constipated, then we don't address anything at night until mm-hmm. that's been addressed. Okay. Um, so time voiding, getting them in the bathroom every two to three hours, et cetera. That's mm-hmm. a very common thing at mm-hmm. five or six or seven. Um, and then we move into medical therapy. So we offer them either DDAVP mm-hmm. or the bedwetting alarm. Right. Um, a big part of it depends on the families. A lot of families are sort of against doing medications. So for those, we prefer to do the alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I, I tend to go more towards the alarm. I think mm-hmm. that the studies that we have show that it has more staying power and it's more effective, um, meaning that once the therapy has worked and you discontinue therapy in terms of regression, I think mm-hmm. it's, uh, the alarm is much more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I've had plenty of families that do well with DDAVP. Okay. It makes sense. I mean, it's like biofeedback versus relying on an external crutch of a medication. Yeah, exactly. Sort of retrain the body and, you know, the DDAVP works. But the, I think ultimately too, you know, there's, it can go either way in terms of, you know, you can do the pills come into 0.2 milligrams mm-hmm. and some people titrate up in our practice, titrate up from one pill up to three and see what's the most effective. 
some start at three and then titrate down and, and, and go from there. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think you can go either way. I don't think there's really a lot of evidence either way in terms of what works best. Mm -hmm. Great. CHOP has a really great UTI pathway, which we can link to on our website. But it suggests that children between um, six months and potty train age should have a bag specimen first. And then if a positive dip, get a calf specimen for culture. In primary care, where we don't have hours to observe or wait for urine, many children go straight to getting a calf specimen from the beginning. So is there any harm to this approach? So are we doing too many calves, basically? You guys don't want to sit around just having urine sitting around the office all day? Um, <laughs> Sometimes we do. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, from my standpoint, I think that you... I think it's all dependent upon what your sort of assessment is and what your risk assessment is for mm -hmm. UTI. I think if you suspect that there's a UTI, mm -hmm. then cathing them is not going to cause any harm whatsoever. Right. If anything, it causes much more harm if you get a bag specimen, it sort of comes back positive, or it's sort of up in the air and antibiotics already started, and then you go and try to down the path, go down the pathway of getting a, a catheterized specimen, mm -hmm. then I think it's sort of been done a disservice for the right. patient. Right. Um, I think that you know you get an early, you know, early cast specimens, start empiric antibiotics, and then you go through it. I mean, mm -hmm. um, I don't think you're going to hurt anything by doing the cast specimen. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you know, patients come in and, you know, they're 18 months old and they have a bag specimen. You almost kind of toss it out the window in terms of how effective or, or what it truly mm -hmm. means in their right. diagnosis in terms of having a true UTI. Right. So don't delay diagnosis is the most important. No. No, <laughs> you're not going to hurt anything. I mean, the, the kid's going to cry and, yeah. you know, it's not always easy to sort of do that in front of the parents. But right. You know, I think that it's, um, it's, it is what it is. I think it is, you know, unfortunately, you got to figure that out. The pathway also suggests that we should consider IV treatment for infants less than six months who, who present with a UTI. So can you explain this? Is this because they're more likely to develop complications or um, why, why are we referring those kids directly to the hospital? Yeah, I think, I think this one's a little bit ambiguous in terms of exactly why, to be honest. I think, I think perhaps... I think in this age group, I think perhaps there may be a little bit higher chance of having an underlying urologic issue that might make their UTI potentially a little bit more severe, mm -hmm. um, meaning, you know, some sort of upper tract, you know, some sort of, you know, so renal obstruction or urethrectasis mm -hmm. or incomplete bladder emptying, et cetera. So I think maybe that's why they sort of err towards this. Mm -hmm. um, you know, also maybe they're sort of... Um, their medical status might be a little bit more tenuous. They don't sort of have the reserve to sort of tolerate a more severe infection and, mm -hmm. you know, might not be able to hydrate very well orally, mm -hmm. um, might be not be able to, if they're actively vomiting, might not be able to take the oral medication. So mm -hmm. I think uh, that's the only reason I could really think of. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's, so I think it just depends on, you know, what their, what their sort of medical status looks like. Mm -hmm. So once we've had a patient who's had a UTI and then they get the renal bladder ultrasound and that's normal, we feel reassured, but then they get another UTI do we consider that an issue where they need to go see urology, that they're getting recurrent UTIs even when their imaging is normal? I think so. I, I mean, I think, because um, it's hard. I mean, I think yeah. that, um, you know, we definitely encounter this scenario a decent amount. And, and sometimes we have a conversation with parents and go through some of the risk factors for UTIs mm -hmm. or sort of screen what they're avoiding is like. And, mm -hmm. and we come up with nothing and we don't really have a great answer for why they have the UTI. Mm -hmm. um, and other times we identify that they have significant avoiding dysfunction. So mm -hmm. I think... I think it's always worth having a discussion with parents because mm -hmm. especially if they're getting frustrated and they go down mm -hmm. this pathway of four and five and six UTIs, mm -hmm. um, I think 
if there's a febrile UTI, then mm-hmm. there's no doubt that they that they should come over. I okay. think if it's an afebrile UTI and they have, you know, obviously you know no fever and they just have some dysuria mm-hmm. and it's more of a cystitis picture, mm-hmm. then it's more likely going to be you know we're going to focus on their voiding patterns mm-hmm. again, sort of immature voiding or they're not voiding very frequently or they're mm-hmm. not emptying effectively or they're not drinking enough water again. I mean, it's um, right. that's typically what we work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the last thing is, you know, the renal bladder ultrasound is notorious for sort of underestimating reflux and if reflux is there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think if there's a febrile UTI, um, then, you know, sort of goes down oh. the potential pathway of a VCUG. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just it just sort of ups the ante in terms of what might potentially go on. Yeah, great. Okay, here's everyone's favorite, incidental findings. So sometimes <laughs> we find an epididymal cyst on exam. Sometimes it does pop up incidentally on an ultrasound done for another reason. So how can we reassure ourselves, though, on exam, if we feel something that we think is an epididymal cyst, that it's not malignant? And kind of how do we decide whether or not we pursue it more? I think, so I think the easiest answer is to just get an ultrasound. Right. I mean, I think even if... You know, even if a testicular mass comes in and I see them and, and all I do is sort of examine that area, mm-hmm. um, I think that I think the easiest thing is just to get an ultrasound. Right. Um, just risk benefit. Yeah, exactly. Because if you miss something, if you do miss a solid testicular mass, then, you know, mm-hmm. you're sort of doing a disservice. Now, that being said, if you have an ultrasound already and you have an epididymal cyst, which mm-hmm. is, again, it's some microlithiasis and epididymal cysts are probably the two most common right. things that we see on ultrasounds that are just basically, you know, we don't worry about too much. But mm-hmm. um, so epididymal cysts, especially if they're small, mm-hmm. so probably less than a centimeter, mm-hmm. um, we always, always push towards not doing any intervention surgically. Um, you really are going to wind up um, just obstructing the vas deferens or the mm-hmm. epididymis. Um, mm-hmm. So we really err towards not doing that. Um, that being said... You know, if it gets large, if it looks like they have two testicles on one side because they have such a large epididymal cyst, then, you know, we could sort of talk to them about potentially doing surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, but we err towards not. Great. Um, on that theme, is there any evidence to support us teaching our adolescent males about self-testicular exams or similar to what's coming out in the breast cancer literature? Is this resulting in more false positives? So I think... My personal bias is mm-hmm. to just teach everyone to do self-testicular exam. Um, basically, anyone that comes in for, any males, obviously, right. that come in for any sort of issue uh, into our office, I always, whenever I'm doing the exam, I just ask them if they've had a conversation at school, you know, mm-hmm. in health class about mm-hmm. doing a self-testicular exam. Um, and I think it's I think it's good for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's it's you know, hopefully, I always joke around with boys. I'm like, I'm like, hopefully, you know, you're sort of washing yourself in the shower mm-hmm. every day, and you know, you could just do a simple exam just to sort of make sure you don't feel anything different, mm-hmm. um, which I think is good. Right. Um, if they can find something, the earlier that they report it to someone, mm-hmm. the better off they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and testicular cancer isn't going to be that common. I mean, it's about one out of maybe 500 boys might actually develop something, mm-hmm. so not that common. But if you can find it and you can identify it early, then we have, you know, you can remove the testicle and 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 sort of be tumor free in a very, mm-hmm. very straightforward fashion. Um, I think it also sort of opens up the door for, you know, sort of easy discussion, like a transition towards, um, you know, sexually transmitted infections mm-hmm. and safe sexual practices. And, you know, these are usually teenage boys and um, I'm not going to pretend to know when they start their sexual activity at these, at, you know, these mm-hmm. days. Uh, it's probably much earlier than any of us want them to be. Right. Um, but I think it's an easy way to sort of you know, make a transition towards potentially just, just opening the door to that topic. Mm-hmm. I've seen certain patients who have gone to urology and then it says in the, in the urology note, 
that you guys want to see them when they hit puberty to teach them testicular exams? So I'm thinking about kids who are maybe higher risk, like who had an undescended testicle in, in infancy. Is that something that you like to do is to bring the higher risk kids back to have that conversation? Absolutely. Yeah, you're 100% right. So, um, And it's funny because, you know, we'll see a patient will operate at six months and we'll see them, you know, three or four months after surgery and we'll say, okay, we'll see you in 12 or 13 right. years, you know. It's so like a whole new kid comes <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully we're still alive. Um, but the, but from, you know, from our standpoint, yes, they are going to be at higher risk. There's mm-hmm. no doubt that, you know, cryptorchidism does increase the risk of testicular cancer for these mm-hmm. boys. Um, and we don't have any recommendations in terms of, you know, scrotal ultrasounds. Mm-hmm. Really, it's just self-testicular exam. Mm-hmm. Um, that's and that's sort of our recommendation for that. And the other sort of population that's at risk for that is is for these boys that have microlithiasis. Okay. So if it's an incidental finding, they have scrotal pain, and they're mm-hmm. seeing these tiny calcifications within the testicle, there's been a lot of sort of back and forth in our literature about whether there's an increased risk of cancer mm-hmm. um, in these boys. There, and, and the honest answer is that there, there might be or there probably is. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, we don't recommend anything other than self-testicular exam. Mm-hmm. Great. So tell us about some of the programs and services within the Division of Urology. Yeah, so so hopefully, well, it's exciting on our end. I don't know how yeah. much it be exciting <laughs> on your end. Um, but yeah, so the Dove Center, again, is, is something where is a great opportunity. We have uh, both nursing and physician staff that basically see all these patients. Um, we end up spending between 45 minutes to an hour with the patients mm-hmm. and really focus on, um, you know, sort of highlighting these issues that you might not be able to sort of talk to patients about in a 15 mm-hmm. to 20 minute visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of like a screening factor for if they need biofeedback and Mm -hmm. if they benefit from other things. Um, We've also partnered with um, our rehab facility and, and there's um, something where you actually do um, a nerve stimulation for patients with overactive bladder, which um, is fairly common in this age group and um, sort of it's pretty early on, but basically it's sort of uh, basically a physical therapy. They come in a few times a week and they stimulate a nerve that's down below the ankle and the leg. And there's some overlap in terms of the nerve conductivity into the sacral spine and um, sort of decreases the overactivity. We're moving over to the Burger Building. With um, we're sort of late to the game in terms yeah. of doing that. <laughs> um, we're trying to hold out and stay in the Wood Center, but uh, we're moving over there, and um, so it's it, that's going to be good news for our spina bifida population, yeah. um, for our patients that are also seeing our nephrology colleagues. Yeah. Um, so probably more joint clinics from that standpoint. We also have um, a, a clinical psychologist. We actually we just hired a second one. So we have two clinical psychologists that right. go to not only CHOP but all of our satellite facilities. Great. Trying to do telemedicine for some of our post-op visits. It's it's for admittedly now it's for more for more routine diagnoses. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of just starting out with circumcisions and then mm-hmm. sort of expand it from there. You know, from our with our radiology colleagues, we're doing things so. Um, we started doing VCUGs with just ultrasounds, um, so there's no more x-rays with that. Um, still involves a catheterization, um, but you get beautiful pictures of the bladder and looking for reflux. Families are also able to sort of hold their child on their lap now, so a little bit more comforting from that standpoint. Nice. And finally, you know, you know, the world of robotics and laparoscopic mm-hmm. surgery, you know, we've done these in, in as patients as young as two months of age now. Mm-hmm. Um, so size and age isn't really too much of a factor. Um, and having, you know, the recovery is, is pretty good. I know I hear that you guys are spending more and more time operating with robots, and now you're moving into telehealth, so you guys are really at the forefront of innovation, which is really awesome. We're trying. We're hoping. I mean, I think, um, you know, trying to make things easier for the families, especially with the telemedicine. Mm-hmm. I think, um, 
I think, you know, with the access that everyone has, I mean, I think it sort of makes sense in terms mm-hmm. of the next step. And that sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We've learned a lot of great pearls from you, as always. We know where to find you, but we will also link to Chop Urology on our website, as well as the UTI pathway that I mentioned earlier. So thanks so much. Perfect. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.